I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Only two men in history have Olympic gold medals in BMX racing. One of them is on the best in the world with Richard Parr today. Yes, I had the pleasure of interviewing Connor Fields, the 2016 Olympic champion in BMX racing on this week's podcast. I really enjoyed my chat with Connor. We talk about a lot of things, including his disappointment at the London 2012 Games, which helped him refocus and redesign himself ready for the 2016 Games. And we talk about a lot of things to do with that, including what his sports psychologist told him before those games and also what his coach said to him just before that final. Really interesting stuff there with Connor Fields. We also talk about his love of cooking. We talk about living and learning to ride in Las Vegas in the area there. We also talk about the different things that he has in his home, including a picture of Rio de Janeiro and how that helped him in visualising success at the 2016 Games. Really enjoyed talking to the young American. We also talk about injuries, how he hurt his hand before the 2016 Games and how he was almost scared to compete and yet he still went on to become the best in the world. So it's a fantastic chat. It's coming up very shortly with Connor Fields on the podcast. Just before we get to it, I want to tell you that today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is one of the leading supplies of audiobooks in the world. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash best audibletrial.com forward slash best to try out their service it's a free 30-day trial it includes a free download of any audiobook of your choosing go and check it out it's a service i personally use recently been listening to ariana huffington's thrive really good book go and listen to that especially if you're interested in high performance which you probably are if you're listening to this podcast all right let's get to it let's get to the interview with the reigning olympic bmx champion it's Connor Fields. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Connor. 
Connor Fields, 2016 Olympic gold medalist in BMX racing. Welcome to the best in the world with Richard Parr. So great to have you on the program. Let's start from the very, very beginning, Connor. How did you first get on a BMX bike? So when I was a little kid um, and I learned how to ride a bike, you know, as most kids do, I would have been about six or seven years old when I learned how to ride. Um, I love riding my bike. So every day I would get home from, from school and I would hop on my bike and I'd just ride around in front of my house until the street lights came on and it was time to go inside. Um, and one day uh, my mom was at the bike shop, uh, must have been just, you know, fixing a flat tire or something that was going on with my bike. And she saw a uh, flyer that was advertising the local BMX club. And she thought to herself, oh, this is, looks like something Connor would enjoy. So we went out and checked it out. And then the following week, uh, we went out and I and I rode for the first time, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. Oh, superb! So, when did you realize that you were good at this? I played other sports. Um, I played American football and uh, soccer and basketball up until I was about twelve. Uh, but maybe around the age of <clears throat> thirteen, fourteen is when I kind of decided that BMX was my favorite, and that's what I wanted to do. And then when I was about 15 or 16, I kind of realized, uh, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. You know, maybe I could actually make a professional career out of it. And you grew up in Vegas, right? Is that a good place for a young BMX rider? Uh, yeah, it's good in that, you know, we have year-round uh, good weather. Vegas is actually the place in the U.S. that gets the least amount of rain per year. I'm so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> On average, we have less than 10 days a year that it rains. So, um, from that perspective, you can ride, you know, 355 days out of the year. So, uh, that, that's a, a good thing to have growing up. Yeah, of course. And obviously there's, there's a lot of temptations in Las Vegas of gambling and drinking and partying and everything like that. Were you always able to focus solely on the BMX without any problems? Well, I mean, until you're 21, you can't do any of that stuff anyway. Mm. Um, you know, when you're a 16, 17-year-old kid, you can't get in uh, into any of the, the places to do that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, you know, I, I will on occasion, you know, go have a night out if it's, you know, my birthday or a friend of mine's birthday or something like that. But um, for the most part, I don't really have the temptation just because that's not what, you know, I enjoy. I enjoy competing i enjoy um you know winning races so you know it's not hard for me to say no uh when you know mates of mine are, are heading out for a night out uh, but you know it's it's one of those things you know people from london don't really go hang out at the tower of london and people from vegas don't really you know it's not like we're oh it's friday night let's go down to the mgm there's, there's <laughs> plenty of areas that the locals go and hang out yeah, exactly. It's like when someone um, is coming to visit you and asks you for a recommendation in a hotel and you say, well, I, I live in the city. I, I, I never use a hotel. Well, how would I know which one would be good? Um, it's, it's that kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't really you avoid the whole downtown strip area unless it's like a special occasion, you know, or you have uh, friends or family visiting who want to go down and see it. You know, I mean, I'll go months. I'll go months without going down to the strip. But it is nice to have it there. Um, there are tons of different concerts and events and fights, and 
you know, there's always something to do here. Like you have no excuse in Las Vegas to ever be bored. Um, but for the most part, you know, we, I live about 20 minutes from there and there there's plenty of little local areas between here and, and the main downtown strip that, uh, I would rather go, go to on a Friday night. Yeah, of course. And your first Olympics was the 2012 games, just 19 years old. Let's, let's talk about that, that whole kind of build up towards those games. What, what were your goals when, when you were heading to that Olympics? Um, my goals when I was 19, I guess I kind of had more of had the mindset of like win or bust. Um, it wasn't a very matured perspective. It was just, you know, kind of a, a, a 19 year old's perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I want to win. Um, and, you know, it, I was a bit of a, a disappointment. I actually, I was in the finals as the number one seed sitting in, you know, our pole position. Um, and I didn't execute. I, you know, for lack of a better word, I kind of choked. Um, so that was a really tough pill to swallow, but I also think it was a really good lesson to learn. Uh, and just the shifting of the mindset from trying to win to just, you know, focusing on doing my best and uh, trying to perform at the best of my abilities. Um, because the, the hardest thing with London was just walking away and not being satisfied with my efforts and knowing that I had left some, something out on the table. You know, had I did my best and still, still finished seventh place, then, you know, yeah, it kind of it kind of stinks. But ultimately you did your best and there was nothing else you could have done, but I couldn't say that. And that's kind of what, you know, really was tough to swallow. Let's break that down in just a moment. But you mentioned about winning there. You also mentioned about winning when you were growing up. How would you normally react when you were growing up when you lost? Oh, not well. I mean, I I always, you know, when I was really young, I really was competitive. Um, and I, you know, it was definitely one of the things that helped mold me into, you know, who I am today and, and to reach the levels of success that I have. But it, it was also tough because, you know, for me, for a long time, you know, winning and losing was, you know, the difference between whether I was going to be happy for the next week or not. Um, you know, I really didn't do a good job of managing the disappointments. Um, but, you know, like I said, at the same time, it was partially that that kind of led me to being successful um you know but as time's gone on and as i've gotten older i've kind of learned to manage you know the successes and the disappointments better and just um that there's more to life than winning and losing a bicycle race how did your family cope when you were having these like sulking weeks um they told me i mean i guess you know my parents were both uh you know older and more mature and my dad was a successful businessman and my mom was a lawyer so you know they see that in the grand scheme of life you know losing a a bmx race when you're 15 is not that big of a deal so you know they would try to you know explain to me hey you know it's not that big of a deal but i didn't really want to hear it at the time Mm, I, i can imagine that so you had that disappointment in 2012 what could be looking back at those losses probably the biggest loss now when you looked back on it, did you sit down with your team? Did you look at it and say, this went wrong, this needs to change? Did, did you go through certain, uh, almost like a list of things and, and look what worked and what didn't work at all? 
Kind of. I mean, physic. I didn't lose because I physically wasn't in shape. I didn't lose because I didn't have the skills or the talent or anything like that. Um, I lost because of, you know, the way I handled the pressure on, on race day. And, you know, in our sport, the start is so important. The start is the key. And you have to be perfect. Like if you are even, you know, 90%, if the guys that you're starting next to are 100%, they'll instantly get in front of you and you'll be blocked, which is what happened. Um, so there is, there is no margin for error. And when you're in an Olympic final and you're in lane one, you're the number one seed, um, that's a really hard thing to manage. Um, so we kind of discussed, you know, what can we do to get you better mentally prepared to handle that moment. And in the run up to 2016, um, I'd put in just as much work on my mentals as I did, you know, physically and, and technically and all that. And, uh, it really made a difference because, you know, like I, I kind of, you know, we could get more into it when we talk about Rio, but I really flipped the script and almost had an opposite type of day in Rio where my absolute best execution was in the finals when it mattered the most. I'm going to talk more about the mental side of everything in just a moment, but I want to talk about, you, you mentioned everything perfectly, technically. For those who are BMX enthusiasts and for those who do compete, what are the, the things you look for to make that perfect start? Uh, well, number one of the timing, um, our, our starting gate is random. There's a period between zero and three seconds when it's going to go down. And um, you have to be, you know, right there with it timing wise. Uh, that was, that's the easiest thing to mess up when you lose focus or you lose concentration. Um, and then on top of timing is body position. You know, uh, you're, you're, we sprint from a standing, a standing position. We're stopped and we get up to 35 miles an hour, which I think is around like 45, 50 Ks um, in 2.5 seconds. So wow. you, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in those 2.5 seconds. Technically um, body position wise, you have to actually connect as well as you can with the pedal. Um, and then you have to, you know, be in a good position and not bumping the guys next to you because you are so close to the guys next to you and if you bump them everybody slows down and uh there's there's a, a lot that goes into it but timing and body position would be the two most important things that sounds really dangerous how bad have your injuries been uh yeah it is fairly dangerous um you know it's some of the people ask me you know would you put your kid into it and it's, you know, it's like uh I don't, I don't know if I would, um, you know, obviously if my child wanted to, I, I would, but uh, I wouldn't steer them in this direction. Uh, from the ground up, I've torn a ligament in my ankle. I've had, um, knee surgery before on a meniscus. I've broken uh, a wrist. I have had stitches a few times. Um, I have, partially separated my shoulder and then the worst one i've done is uh, i had internal bleeding at one point oh oh my goodness oh mm -hmm. that sounds... but i keep going back i keep going back out there <laughs> when you first did it were you ever scared at all did you have to be brave to do it no not necessarily i mean at the end of the day if you were to if you were to you know interview an american football player who had been playing for 20 years their list of injuries would be similar 
you know, if not worse. Mm. Um, same with if you think hockey or a fight or any other contact sport, you know, they, they get injured as well. So um, <clears throat> I, I, unless you're, you know, in a sport like golf or swimming when you're, you know, you're not being contacted, getting hurt's a part of the game. Um, and it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And <clears throat> the way I look at it is, you know, every now and then when you get hurt, you kind of, that's just the price you pay for the adrenaline rush that you get. You know, for me, I get to do something that I love that also gives me this incredible rush. And that is, you know, so much fun to me, but <clears throat> you know, every couple of years I'll, uh, I'll have to sit in the couch for a few months, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal to me. And you mentioned bumping into people. What happens with these rivalries? Do you sometimes almost get into clashes with people? Is there anything nasty ever happen when you bumped into someone or they bumped into you and there's been a confrontation? Does anything ever happen like that? Oh yeah. Um, and that's, <clears throat> that's the cause of 95, 90, 98% of our crashes as uh, other riders, you know, if you take the best guys in the world, we could ride, you know, a thousand laps and you might only get a crash one out of every 1000 laps. And then, you know, when people start crashing is when you have eight riders on the track and you can't kind of predict always correctly what the other riders are going to do, like what part of the track they're going to move to, what line they're going to take, what angle they're going to go through a turn you can't really predict that. And that's what leads to the, the crashes. Um, you know, if, if me and another rider are both going for the same line into a turn, there's only room for one person sometimes. And that's when it can, we can collide. Um, and there are instances where people will, and I have instances as well, where, you know, people will get into um, just individual battles, you know, between a, a couple of specific riders, you know, whether it's, um, you know, if, if rider a crashes rider B and then, you know, going forward, rider B is going to be looking for retribution and payback. Uh, but at the same time, anytime that that happens, you're slowing yourself down and you're distracting yourself from the race. And, you know, that kind of stuff never ends with you being successful in the way that you want to be successful. You might bump the other guy off the track, but you know, you still end up fifth place instead of winning. Um, but yeah, it happens. Um, and it's full contact. And, and all that but yeah at the end of the day that kind of stuff slows you down and you have to try to like uh you know not let your emotions get the best of you in those moments and i think that's a perfect point for us to to move on to the mental aspect of things now you you mentioned you made dramatic changes from 2012 to 2016 so what exactly did you do so basically when i was in the lead up to 2012 i was 18 and 19 and um I was just kind of hell bent on winning. You know, I just wanted to win. I wanted to be the best. I wanted to be the champ. And then, you know, after, after the disappointment in London, um, you know, it hit me pretty hard. You know, I'd gone from amateur to Olympic favorite in like a period of like 18 months. Uh, it all happened so fast. Um, probably even too fast to be ready to handle. And, um, you know, I think it was really hard, but at the same time, looking back, I think it's one of the best things that could have happened because it, it kind of taught me that there's more life. Um, after London, I enrolled in university part-time, and I've been going part-time to school ever since, um, just having a little bit of balance in my life. You know, whether I win or lose at a competition, you know, there's still class on Monday, and the teacher doesn't care what place I got. He just The teacher just cares, you know, how my assignment, how my assignment is. Mm -hmm. um, and then just focusing... Uh, 
the goal was not focusing so much on the outcome and, and the winning or the positioning and focusing more on just, just doing my best. And I mean, there would be days where I would do my best and somebody would beat me, but I would still be pleased with my efforts because I did my best. And, you know, if you, if you, if you do your best and someone beats you, you shake their hand, you say good job. And you say, you know, I got to go home, work a bit harder and, and try to beat you next time. And that's uh that's a much easier, you know, thing to move on from than if you do, don't do your best and somebody beats you that you know that you could have beat. Um, so that was the big, the big shift in attitude was just, you know, trying to leave every competition saying that I did my best. And um, for the most part in the lead up to Rio and the last you know year or so leading up to Rio, I was able to do that, you know, 98% of the time. Oh, fantastic. So let's talk more about that lead up. Now, what would be a typical training day for you? Um, so we train, I usually train about five times a week. Um, and in BMX, we need to have a lot of different skills. You know, we need to be explosive and strong off the start. You need to have the technical ability to jump 40, 40 feet jumps and go around these big banks, corners. Uh, and then you have to have the, um, the endurance, you know, to do these 40 second laps. So we do a lot of different stuff in training. Um, the, the, the morning will either be some riding, some technical stuff. Um, or some, some starts, uh, practice starts, and then in the afternoon, either some conditioning, maybe some, some stuff in the weight room. Uh, but a usual week's about five, uh, five days. I like to train at 9 a.m. That's my time. It's the uh, same as like work usually starts about 9 a.m. So um, I like to get out there and get my training in, um, come back, usually make lunch. And then in the afternoon, depending on what day it is, I'll either, you know, sometimes I've got class, sometimes I'll do some study, uh, sometimes I'll, you know, run some errands. And then if I've got an afternoon session, I'll do that around 3 or 4 p.m. Um, before eating dinner and uh, relaxing before bed. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a few things about that. So what, what is your typical diet? What, what's breakfast? What's lunch normally? Breakfast, I usually start with a bowl of oatmeal. I think a few Brits call it porridge mm. um, <laughs> with some, some fruit and some nuts mixed in there, some, some berries and that. And then uh, if it's a big training day, I'll, I'll have a couple eggs as well um, just to really you know, fill up the energy tank. And then uh, I, try to eat real, I try to eat as healthy as I can, but at the same time, <clears throat> I don't limit myself. My, our nutritionist for Team USA, she says I, uh, 80-20 or 90-10 rule. So... Basically, 80% of the time you're eating clean, you're eating healthy, and 20% of the time, you know, if you if you want a, a a lolly or if you want, you know, a milkshake, you can can get it. Just don't let it become more than uh, 20% of the time. And you know, we're a not an endurance sport, not not you know a, a long distance type of sport where nutrition is at. It, it's important for us, but not to the same extent as you know a marathon runner would be. Mm. Um, so yeah, I kind of follow the. I, I use more of a ninety ten rule. I try to eat clean ninety percent of the time, and then uh, usually Sunday. Sunday's my day where I'll have uh, either like you know, it's like a hamburger, a cheeseburger, maybe a slice of pie or something like that on a Sunday. Mm, a, a few, a few of you Olympic champions like your pies. I've heard that a few times actually. I always joke saying that you know the only reason I'm an athlete is so I can eat more because I burn all the calories. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think a lot of people are very jealous of that. We were talking about food there. Uh, one of the things I did read about you is, is you enjoy cooking. Is that right? Yeah, um, I do. Uh, I enjoy cooking. My girlfriend and I we uh, we cook a little bit. Um, like just last night for the first time, we tried uh, 
we tried making some homemade red curry. Uh, oh, lovely. Pretty, turned out pretty, pretty good. Um, and I, I like to grill a little bit. I mean, grilling, I don't know if you count grilling as cooking. It's just, you know, they set it on the grill. But, um, yeah, I always find that you eat a lot cleaner when you eat in, when you cook your dinner. So I just try to do that rather than, you know, going out for dinner too much. Uh, what's your speciality? Oh, my speciality. Um, I make some pretty good Mexican tacos. I, uh, I I love Mexican food, and I use uh, I use ground turkey instead of ground beef as it's a leaner meat. Um, but I make a pretty good pretty good turkey tacos. Oh, sensational! All right, that, 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 that's wonderful. Now, uh, we, we were talking about your your whole day, and now you said after dinner you're relaxing, resting. How, how do you unwind? Um, you know, I. I I either like to spend time, I make it a point to spend time with my friends. Um, being in an individual sport, uh, it can get kind of lonely at times. Um, you know, you train sometimes by yourself, you know, you're competing by yourself. You don't have that team to kind of lean on and, and travel with and spend time with. So I make it a point to um, a couple times a week, meet up with a, a couple of my mates who I've grown up with. And, you know, whether it's just meeting up and uh, grabbing, grabbing a beer or it's uh going to see in a movie or, or whatever it may be. I make it a big, big part of my life to make sure I, I stay in touch with my friends. Um, you know, maybe might be hanging out with my, my girlfriend, you know, watching a movie, um, you know, different sorts of things like that with her uh, or, you know, catching up with mom and dad. I just, I try to try to spend time with uh, the people in my life. That's, that's my favorite way to unwind. Oh, that's fantastic. And we've spoken about you being in Vegas, and we're now going to talk more about heading towards the Rio Olympics. But another thing I read about you was that you had a panoramic picture of Rio in your house ahead of the Rio Games. Is this true? And was there any thinking towards it? Was there any kind of visualization for it? Or was it just, I like this picture? No. um, So basically what I've done is, and I've been lucky enough to travel all around the world. So um, I've tried to pick up everything uh, or something everywhere that I've gone. Um, and so my, my living room, you know, or my couch and my TV is, it's got decorations from all over the world. So um, I'm in here right now and there's something I got in Paris. There's something I got in Argentina. There's something from New Zealand, something from Manchester. There's something from Holland, uh, something from Melbourne, Australia. And then the biggest piece is uh, <clears throat> a big panoramic view of, Christ the Redeemer and uh, Sugarloaf Mountain in Rio, and uh, I put that as the main decoration. I actually bought it in like 2013 because I knew that, you know, that was the ultimate goal. That's, I mean, the Olympics is the ultimate prize in sport, and um, you know that was what I really was working towards every day. So my thought process behind it was, it doesn't look out of place in a room. You know, if you if you didn't know I was aiming for the Rio Olympics, you could look at the room and be like, oh, wow, this is really cool. These are all the places you've been. Um, and I'd say, yeah. But for me, it was just, you know, on those days where you don't want to get up off the couch or on those days when you're tired and you're not feeling good, you've got that constant reminder right there of what you're working towards. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. Stand by for more from Connor in just a moment, but I want to take this moment to tell you about the other program that I'm involved with. It's called Sportachino. It's a daily sports chat show. We speak to journalists, sports stars, influencers every single weekday, and that includes things such as wrestling. We talk about sports business. We talk about health and fitness, and we also review and preview the big sporting action of the weekend every single weekday so go and check it out sportachino.com for your top place for sports chats all right let's get back to the interview with the bmx olympic champion it's connor fields the best in the world podcast with richard parr we're in rio it's it's 2016, but leading up to it, you, you had a bit of a problem, didn't you? You, you? Did you break your hand? I did. I broke a bone in my wrist, uh, actually in Manchester. So at the uh, there's three World Cups in the lead up to Rio, and at the second World Cup was in Manchester, and uh, I had a I had a mis- I made a mistake, and I put my hand out when I fell, and I broke a bone in my wrist, Ooh. and that was in uh, April. So it was like. Uh, I think four and a half months before the Rio game. How did you cope with that mentally? Not well. <clears throat> it was really hard. Um, not only was it a bad timing, it was a really bad, a really bad break. Uh, it wasn't just a standard, uh, standard break. So I had to see a specialist. Uh, I had to fly see, and see a specialist in Colorado. Um, we did a five-hour surgery where he had to actually take a piece of bone from my upper arm screw it into my wrist because the bone had died and they were trying to kind of jumpstart the blood flow back into the wrist. Um, so not only was it a question of like, am I going to be healthy for Rio? It was a question of, is my wrist ever going to be, you know, healed properly again? Um, and there was many a day when I didn't think it was going to work out. Um, I actually only made the team off of a conditional uh, selection. Um, there's three spots on the U.S. team. The first two are earned by ranking and uh, a trials race. The last one's a, a conditional selection based on previous results. And I had to basically plead and prove that I was going to be healthy enough before they would give me the conditional selection. Um, so it was a really tough go. And then once I got the conditional selection, it was, you know, 
am I going to be able to get back to, you know, my, uh, my form pre-injury, um, and be competitive in Rio. And it was, it was physically, emotionally, mentally exhausting in that, that, you know, four month period. Oh my goodness. How, how did it feel for you when you first went back on the bike after that operation? When it, as you said, it was a, a surgery where it might not even kind of work for you. How, how were, were you concerned that you could make it worse? Yeah. So basically, uh, I, I, I called the doctor and, uh, he is a uh, U.S. Olympic team doctor. He's like the head doctor for the ski and snowboard team. Um, so he's used to working with athletes. And, you know, athletes obviously have different timelines than uh, the general population as far as, you know, when we don't necessarily ask, when am I going to be healed? We ask, when can I get back out there? <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, he basically, he, he couldn't legally clear me and say you're better. But what he said was, you're at the point where vibrations and holding onto the handlebar isn't going to cause any further damage. But if you are to put your hand out again, even lightly, you can run the risk of shattering the bone and needing your wrist to be fused. So what I will tell you, what I will tell you is that if all goes well and you stay on the bike, you'll be fine. If you put your hand out again, you run risk of permanent damage. So I had to make the decision, like, is that a gamble that I'm willing to take? And the truth of the matter was that there's only one race that I would take that gamble for, and that's the Olympic Games. I wouldn't do it for a World Championships. I wouldn't do it for a Pan American Games. It's just only the Olympics. And, and you know, that was, you know, I, I raced my whole life leading up to this, this event. And um, so I decided to kind of take the risk and take the gamble. And, uh, you know, at the end, at the end, I, it was scary. Um, I was terrified. You know, I, I had no choice but to go basically straight from nothing into riding at a high level uh, because there was only eight weeks from the time I got back on the bike until the race. So we, I didn't have time to take a couple of weeks and kind of ease into it. I basically had to go straight into it. But at the same time, that might have actually been helpful because I didn't have a choice. You know, mm. it was almost when your back's against the wall, you know, you're up against the ropes, you just start swinging. And... um so yeah, the the second time I rode, I was already back on an Olympic level track, um, and yeah, I was scared, I was terrified and and nervous. But uh, once I got those first couple of riding days in, I just started ticking them off and started, uh, you know, going uh, going all in for Rio. And at the same time, it could have been helpful in that, you know, I knew the risk that I was taking, and I wasn't going to take the risk, and I wasn't do it kind of half halfway i was gonna i was gonna do everything i possibly could to give myself the opportunity to be successful just because of what i was risking and um you know in hindsight it's one of those things where like had i not had the injury i don't know like it might have all had a completely different turnout i might not have won i might have only won because of the lessons learned and what i what i did uh because of the injury which is just kind of a crazy thought Mm, amazing stuff and obviously the gamble paid off you became the olympic champion talk me through that day and your feelings for it yeah so um our competition is held over three days so the first day we do a seating run uh it's just you by yourself uh you do a lap it's timed and it sees you uh, i went in as the number four seed um as after the seating runs and i was only about a tenth or two tenths off of the the number one seed, so I knew I was in in good form. Um, so that was a good little confidence booster. 
Um, then the following day is the heats. We run three heats. Um, and the way it works is you get one point for first, two for second, three for third, you know, so on. And the lowest four uh, riders out of the heats are going to advance on to the semifinals. Um, in my heats, I went, I think, first, fourth, third, uh, which smoothly uh, advanced me through to the semifinals. Uh, so the final day is the semifinals and the final. Um, same format with three semifinals, and then there's only one final. Uh, of the two semifinals, I was definitely put in the harder one. Um, we had the the odds-on favorite, uh, as well as the defending silver medalist from uh, from London, uh, as well as a couple other guys. The 2015 world champion was in there. Um, it was just a really stacked semi semifinal. Um, but I rode really well. I went second in the first one. I got second in the second one, and I knew that basically I needed seventh or better in the out of eight in the third round to advance me into the final. Um, and I collided with another rider in the third semifinal, almost crashed, yeah. held it together, and ended up sixth. So I advanced into the finals and now this is an interesting thing that my sports psychologist had me do before the uh before the rio games she had me go back and she said hey i'd like you to watch the beijing games and the rio or the london games and i want you to tell me what you see don't watch yourself just watch the race and let me know what you see and i said all right so i went and did that and what i saw was whatever happened in the heats whatever happened in the semifinal didn't have a direct correlation to what happened in the final. So what that showed me is you could win all day long, like I did in London. I won all my heats, and I won two of the three semis, but I didn't get a medal. And the guy who got the bronze medal in, in London, for example, he didn't win a lap the entire race, but he got into the final, and he performed in the final, and he took home a bronze medal. So essentially what I knew now is that, okay, I'm in the final, so everything that's happened before this is off the table. Everything's it's just a fresh, clean slate. Now there's eight guys, there's one race, and three of us are going home with a medal. And again, this is one of those times where that shift in my thinking from, you know, going from I want to win to just I want to do my absolute best. And that's all I was I was just focused on just performing at my best. Um, and then in the uh, in the staging before we went up there, my coach comes up to me and he says, uh, "Hey Connor, do you remember London?" Do you remember how much that sucked? He also used some choice words that I won't repeat on your podcast. <laughs> and, and, he, and, and, he, and he said, uh, go get it. This is your chance. And, um, you know, that really lit a fire up inside of me because, you know, I had to deal for disappointment of London. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting up on that starting line and I was so calm. Um, and it was just a calmness from being prepared. I had, I'd visualized this moment a million times. I had thought through this moment so many times. I'd done this, this moment in training every start, you know, and all that. And um, I ended up just performing at my absolute best when it mattered the most. And, you know, despite, you know, going into the final as the number six seed, um, I ended up winning. And it was just a testament to, you know, my sports psychologist for showing, showing me that, whatever happens before the final, you got to shake it off, whether it's good or bad and just perform in that final. Um, and it was just, a, it was winning the race was an incredible feeling, but what I remember most 
even more so than crossing the finish line and jumping up and down and celebrating with my 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 friends and family. What I what I remember more is the three the three four minutes before the race and just how locked in and tuned in I was and the the world was almost in slow motion and I had like a hyper uh, hyper sensitivity of everything and it was just a really incredible feeling in that in that lead up and um, something I'd never felt before but it was it was really cool. Oh, amazing! And what's next for you, Connor? I'll do another Olympic cycle, so uh, Tokyo um, in three and a half years, and then in between, then uh, you know we actually race a lot. I'll do about fifteen competitions a year. So uh, between the the World Championships is the biggest one in non-Olympic years. We have a World Cup series uh, this year. We're racing in Holland, Belgium, and Argentina, and then. Uh, We've got a domestic series here in the U.S., so I'll do about 15 competitions a year, um, as well as continuing uh, school part-time and uh, trying to stay away from gambling too much. <laughs> what are you studying, Connor? Uh, business. Um, so I, uh, when I first went, I, I had started um, studying kinesiology, but it was almost too much. I would like, you know, be studying about the human body, and then I would train, and then I would be like you know, everything was about the human body and it was just almost too much so i i transferred over to business and uh i really enjoy it um right now i'm taking a class in economics and a class in accounting and uh and I, I enjoy it a lot oh fantastic have you thought about your life after racing i have um what i think i want to do is actually i i, I have a, a really great agent um who's inspired me to want to be an agent and uh so he works uh, with action sports athletes and uh, i'd like to be an agent with other action sports athletes and uh, now i don't know i don't know if you've heard but in 2020 the ioc has included skateboarding and surfing mm. into the olympic program um so with that happening and action sports becoming a little bit more intertwined with the olympic program i think that you know i would have a good um, you know, a good position to go to a young action sports athlete and say, Hey, you know, I've been in your shoes. I've done it. I've also gone to school and learned the business and uh, kind of help mold the careers of future athletes. Yeah. If, if there's going to be anyone to learn from, it's certainly going to be from you, from your experience. So you, you mentioned surfing. I've had uh, Kaylee Gilchrist on the program before. She's a, a water polo player and she's actually trying to compete in surfing at the Tokyo Games as well, which would be a, a, an amazing, oh, cool. an amazing feat. Well, it's been really, really good to talk to you today, Connor. Thank you so much for being on The Best in the World with Richard Barr. Just before you go, why don't you let us know how we can continue to get your great knowledge and continue to follow your journey to Tokyo in 2020 on any of your social media platforms and also anything else you'd like to speak about or promote please oh yeah uh, well thanks for having me on and if anybody wants to uh, follow me my social media handles are uh, on YouTube Twitter Instagram Facebook it's all the same it's Connor Fields 11 C-O-N-N-O-R F-I-E-L-D-S 1-1 number 11 is my racing number and yeah, keep in touch and uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, Connor, it's been so good to talk to you. Thank you for being the best in the world. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
Really good to speak to Connor. All right, not quite BMX riding, but if you're interested in cycling, we've had two really good interviews in the past. One with Katie Archibald, the track cycling Olympic gold medalist, plus also the world's champion Andy Tennant. Go back and listen to the full archive of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. You can do that on iTunes. Go to richardparr.net forward slash iTunes to get straight there. It's all there for your pleasure on the best in the world of Rich Bar. Plus, we've got all the episodes at sportercino.com. Next week, I'll be speaking to another rower. Stay tuned for who that might be on the podcast because it is more fantastic knowledge that we can learn so that we can be the best in the world. All right, I've been Richard Bar. I'll speak to you again next Wednesday. Have a great week. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.